But the core thesis is, is, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is this idea that Mars Dorian really kind of planted in my head of, of, you know, being the only option is better than being the best option. Because if you are the only option, there is no competition. Welcome, guys and gals, to the Man Talks podcast. I am the host and founder of Man Talks, Connor Beaton. This podcast brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, in love, and of course, in business. Imagine having experienced mentors with decades and decades of wisdom delivered right into your ears. Today, we have the master of disaster on creativity, maybe not disaster. We have Mr. Srinivas Rao, who is the host and founder of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's interviewed over 500 creative entrepreneurs and artists and insanely interesting people. Former guests on the show have included Tim Ferriss, Simon Sinek, Seth Godin, and literally hundreds of others. Today, the show has over 550 five-star reviews and a global audience. He regularly speaks with audiences about creativity and digital storytelling. His written works have been featured by USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Inc., The Blaze, and the CBC Sunday Morning Show. So today on the podcast, Srini and I, some people call him Srini for short, we are going to dive into creativity. We're going to talk about his new book, uh, which really features this cool idea about how the only is be better than being the best. So this is the idea that by coming up with and curating and creating a unique idea, that is the one most important thing that you can do. Even supersedes being the best in something in some cases, because if you're the only one doing it, you don't have a lot of competition. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about how to develop a deeper sense of confidence with your creativity and your craft. We're going to talk about monetizing your creativity and why that's okay. Srini actually goes in to share some of the stories that he's never, ever shared on other podcasts, which is pretty freaking cool. So I'm excited about this. And he's going to answer some of the questions that you, the listeners and the audience, answered on the post on the Man Talks page. So thank you very much for posting your questions for Srini. We're going to keep doing that. So if you have questions for further guests, uh, make sure you let us know. But without further ado, creativity with Mr. Srinivas Rao. All right, Srini. So an absolute pleasure to have you here um, on, on the Man Talks podcast. I'm excited. And uh, you know what? I think our community is really excited as well. I put up a little Facebook post yesterday and got people engaged and they were like, oh, you got to ask him this and ask him that. You're a little, <laughs> bit, you're a little bit of a celebrity in, in, in our community. That's uh, that's kind of amusing to me, right? It's like being being famous on the internet to me in any way at all is pretty ridiculous because you know you walk into a coffee shop in your neighborhood or you walk down the street, nobody knows who the hell you are. <laughs> like pretty it, much, it, it, it's funny. You know, I said somebody said if you went to your grocery store and asked people who Seth Godin was, they would be like, "What?" <laughs> <laughs> like most of them would have no idea. It's like just some bald guy walking through the grocery store. So I, I'm always amused by by that. 
um, you know, it, it's it's interesting because I, th- I think we have a really weird sort of perception of Internet fame or, you know, because we're in these very small circles in which we're known. But when you get out of it, you, you, you know, you're kind of like, oh, nobody knows who I am. <laughs> like, totally. Yeah. You know, I don't get anything, any sort of special treatment at the coffee shop. Like, you know, I, I saw Pat Flynn at a Starbucks. I'm like, oh, I doubt the person behind the counter knows who Pat Flynn is. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I mean, it's a really good point. And like, you know, it, the only times that we really you know, I think I think sports celebrities they mm-hmm. they generally uh, they generally get a lot of 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 fame and, and attention. Yeah. I think like movie stars, real but, celebrities, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but author status, not. I mean, unless you like J.K. Rowling or or, yeah. uh, or like George R. R. Martin, you're not going to get like tracked down at the coffee shop. Yeah, no, no. I mean, it would, you know, <laughs> that would be amusing and it'd be funny, but no, I don't think so. Uh, so I'm, I have, I have lots of questions for you today because I'm, yeah. I'm really, I've been really excited about, uh, about this interview. Um, first off, your, your name, I'm always curious about names. Srinivas Rao. What yeah. is, what does your first name mean? Do you know, do you know the, the sort of origin story? This tells you how bad of an Indian person I am because no, I have no idea. Oh. Like, I mean, you'd have to look it up on Wikipedia, and like we could look it up together, and that would probably be you know an exercise. Um, I, I actually don't like I, I don't actually know the answer to that question, and I should, um, which is really sad. <laughs> I, I stumped you, I stumped you but, right at the gates. I love well, it. Okay, so I mean, the fact that I'm a surfer should tell you I'm about as atypical of an Indian as you could find. Right? <laughs> in five years of surfing, I think I've seen one Indian person in the water, and I was like, wow, it's like finding an endangered species. <laughs> Did you have a moment where you're like locked eyes with each oh, other yeah, and you were cool. like, are you, am I? Yeah, I, I totally. And it was funny. It was with, uh, it was with, you know, a girl, girlfriend, now wife of another guy that surfs and she was Sri Lankan and she looked at me and, she, and we kept looking at each other. And, you know, I was like catching wave after wave. It was just one of those really good days. And I started talking to her, her boyfriend and he and I are friends now. Like you have, you know, make friends when you see people in the water and she's like, are you Indian? I'm like, yeah. She was as stunned as I was to see her. Yeah, <laughs> that's amazing. Well, I always, I always like asking people that question because usually, I don't know, it's, it says something about them or like about their parents or their family or something like that, and you know, or there's like some weird story or or they just have no clue and they're like, you know what, I should go find that out. Uh, yeah, because it I seems really should. I well, I will tell you this: it's like a super common name in South India. Srinivas Rao is like the John Smith of South India. Like Rao is literally one of the most common last names ever in in the state in India which my parents are from very nice okay well there we go at least we we have some heritage there we go <laughs> uh and so where whereabouts are you right now you're so i'm at a uh, co-working space called outside in Encinita. it's like a co-working space slash airbnb and actually the way i found out about it was through um a guy named leo at buffer who's a co-founder of buffer i happened to see him posting it on instagram and coincidentally when i was looking for a place to to book down here um i was you know as you as i we talked about before we hit record here. I'm uh, at this place uh, because I'm, I'm recording the audio version of my upcoming book. So I wanted a studio that was close to the water in San Diego. And so I found this place to stay at. And, you know, I, I basically start the mornings here and then go into the studio every morning. Very nice. Very nice. Well, um, yeah. So tell me, I mean, before we jump into the book and before we jump into the unmistakable creative and, you know, tell me first off a little bit, just for the listeners who might not know yeah. uh, what you do and who you are, uh, what do you do? That's a, that's, you know, that's such an, it, it's a really funny question because when you have to answer it exactly the way you ask it, it sounds like a totally made up job, which it is. Right. <laughs> it I was literally made up out of thin air and it doesn't even sound like a real job. So I'm a combination of a, a couple of different things. I think the, the interesting thing is that I've always believed that labels limit our capacity. Um, 
maybe not always, but the more I, more I, I identified with various labels, the more I realized how much they li- limit our capacity. So I've you know done a wide variety of things. You know, I've um, I'm an author, I'm a speaker, I produce a podcast, I've produced an animated series, I produce an event. So I'm really a media creator more than anything else. Um, that's that's really what my work is. Is it's about using the internet and using technology to make things and use and make things across all forms of media. Um, that's really kind of the underlying thread in my work. And, and more than anything uh, under that, of course, is telling stories using forms of media. Hmm. Would you describe yourself as the hyper-creative, hyper-creative version of Gary Vaynerchuk? <laughs> um, that, might be a bit, that might be a bit far-fetched. Uh, it's so funny. Like I, I was watching Gary Vaynerchuk last night on Chase Jarvis. And, you know, I, I actually didn't, you know, for the longest time, something about him, like, just didn't, you know, gel with me. But after I watched that interview, I was like, okay, you know what? He's got a lot of valuable insights to share. it. And, you know, I was kind of surprised because he said, he's like, he's not a, he comes off as rough around the edges, but apparently if you work with him, he's like just the nicest guy and like not confrontational at all and all this stuff. And I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, so I think I, here's the difference between me and Gary V. I think he's trying to be on top of everything. I'm trying to get rid of as many things from my life as possible. Like, you know, I remember he's at, you know, he, like I downloaded Snapchat for the first time yesterday after watching that interview and Snapchat has been around for a while and been talked about. Uh, so I'm, I'm constantly trying to, to delete and subtract things from my life. I think that he's like 24 seven, go, go, go. Whereas I'm like, okay, how do I shut down as much of the noise as possible? Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. It's it's funny. I did the exact same thing with with Snapchat. I think you and I are a little bit more similar because we had uh, Lewis Howes out here for the event mm-hmm. last month, and he was like, "Man, you gotta you gotta get on Snapchat. Like, you just you have to do it." And I was like, uh, "Okay, fine." <laughs> so I I so you know uh, one of the questions that came up, um, I think when when you know you posted that I was being interviewed by you was you know what contrarian viewpoints or what do I you know with that Peter Thiel question right? I think the idea that everybody should do anything is complete bullshit. Like, it's ridiculous. There's nothing that every single person should do. You know, like, do you really want Seth Godin giving up his daily blog so he can be on Snapchat? No. No. I mean, Seth shouldn't do that because he's awesome at what he does. Yeah. And if he chooses to do it, great. But I'm kind of like, I don't know. I mean, so I I fundamentally disagree with the notion that everybody should do anything because it it just it gets in the way of your creativity and your originality. Hmm. Like, you know, like I've heard people say everyone should start a podcast. I'm like, no, no, not necessarily. (laughs) There's people who would be better off being painters because they're amazing painters. And if they started a podcast because somebody said they should and gave up their painting and they sucked at podcasting. Well, now they've just added more noise to the world and they've denied the world the gift that they could give. Yeah. And there's, I mean, there's a ton of noise out there. And I think sometimes people fall into this trap of not being too clear on what their creative outlets actually are. And so then they try and dive into what everybody else is telling them. Right. So they just go to where all the noise is and they're like, Oh, people are making a bunch of noise here. So I'll just go join the crowd and then I'll try and add my voice into that space. So so, you know, I think a good example of this for me is, is medium, right? Like you don't hear a lot of people talk about the value of medium. Whereas, I mean, I'm, I'm the biggest fan of the platform because medium has literally changed my career. Like I got my book deal because of medium, uh, you know, our email list is, is, you know, growing like a weed right now because of medium, our, you know, uh, even my, my social presence is, is much more significant there. And my footprint there is much more powerful than any other platform for me. Like, 
I'm like, okay, I have no followers on Snapchat. Like it would take a time, time to build the following. I have, you know, Facebook's algorithms. Who the hell knows if anybody actually sees anything you post. So I'm like, all right. I've shown that this is our third largest driver of traffic. It literally led to actual money, which was the book deal. I'm like, it's hard for me not to to believe in, in you know one platform. I'm of the belief that you should find one thing and get good at it, not try to be average at a thousand different things. Um, so, so you know, I, I don't know that if I, if I you know, I, I mean, it's flattering to be compared to Gary, but at the same time, I think there's fundamental differences in our working styles and our approach, and that's a good thing. You know, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think even Gary would say, "Oh, you should try to be just like me." I mean, it, there's no, you don't want to be like anybody else. No, you know? not I at all. You, you want you want to bring your own flavor. I was just curious. I about you know how uh how and and if people had compared you to him before and, and that's you know, the first yeah perfect <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm glad that i've i've you know offered up two uh two firsts here right in the beginning uh maybe this will be another one i'm i've you know in that facebook chat we had a couple people that reached out and one of the guys talked about your backstory mm-hmm. and he was really interested in kind of learning more about you and so my i guess my question for you is you know can you share with us an interesting story or, or some interesting stories about you as a kid that have kind of led to you being who you are today. Yeah, I'm so glad you asked uh, that question rather than the backstory itself, because I've been thinking about, you know, where does some of this discipline and, you know, habit come from? So I'll I'll tell you, believe it or not, the the one thing that and it's cool, because I've never gotten to really talk about this in an interview before, um, is I was in band in high school. So um, I started, you know, playing the tuba in seventh grade. And the way I started playing the tuba was that, um, you know, I I had two friends and they were big dudes. And we, we lived in Texas. If you don't know this, if you in Texas, there are seventh graders the size of grown men, literally. Um, and everybody plays football. And so I had these two friends that I'd grown up with since like fourth grade. And they were going out for the football team. So I went out for the football team as well. So keep in mind, just you've seen pictures of me. You know, I'm not big. So just imagine what I looked like in seventh grade. But I wanted to be a hero. And it's funny because those two friends quit after two days of practice. They couldn't handle the heat. They couldn't handle any of it. And I stuck it out the entire season. Um, but I also had, there's, there's a caveat to my sticking it out the entire season. Pretty quickly, I figured out that I was going to get the shit beat out of me on a daily basis. <laughs> and so the band director told me, he said, Hey, if you switch instruments to the tuba, um, one, he said, I think you'll be really, really good. Like you'll, you'll make all state band. I think you've got just a natural gift at this. I have no idea to this day why he said that, because it's not like I was, you know, born with any sort of genetic predisposition for musical talent. Um, but I also figured out that if I switched the tuba, the only way you could get out of football practice is if you needed to get tutored. Now, I was a straight A student, so I didn't need to get tutored for anything, you know, but I figured out that if I told the football coaches that, hey, I need to go get tutored for band, which was kind of true, like I would go and practice that meant, you know, practicing the tuba meant I got to ditch football practice. And so the band director kind of, you know, laid it down for me. He said, look, he said, you can go and be really average at sports or you can be exceptional at this one thing. And so I think that's another sort of... um thread that has always run through my work is I've always looked for things that I could be exceptional at rather than, you know, you know, fitting into the crowd at or average at. And so, you know, that really became a sort of driving force in my own discipline. So I, you know, I missed all region band by one chair when I was in seventh grade. The next year I was first chair in the region, like the same, same audition, same group of kids. I went from being, you know, first alternate to being number one in that entire group. Then uh, fast forward to my freshman year. And so in Texas, Texas is probably the most competitive um, 
breeding ground for musicians imaginable. It's like, it's like the music programs in high schools in Texas are just phenomenal. Um, and you know, that I, I'm forever grateful that I've got to experience that. And so, um, what ended up happening is, so the way they break it up is they have what's called the ninth grade all region band, uh, for freshmen. And then they have, you know, what everybody else tries out for. And I had a band director who was very, a band director and a private lessons teacher who both insisted that I should not try out for the ninth grade band, that I should try out for the ones that all the sophomores, juniors, and seniors do, because there would be no comp, it just wouldn't be a fair competition for me to be in the ninth grade band. Um, and I, I, I fought them tooth and nail on it because I was like, I want to be first chair. I don't want to miss. Like I was really worried that I wouldn't make it at all. And that the whole thing would blow up in my face. And they're like, that's absolutely not going to happen. So what ended up happening is, um, this ninth grade band director, he really instilled in me a discipline uh, that to this day carries me into every, you know, impacts me. And I never realized this until I was just writing about it the other day. So what he, the big things I learned from him were, you know, you, you practice, every single day to get what, you know, to get good at whatever it is you want to get good at. So, I mean, I literally was the, the, the student who showed up at six in the morning at school um, and I left and I would lock up the band hall. The band director would go home before I did. So it was like, you know, show up before the boss shows up and go home after the boss goes home type of thing, which that did not at all carry into my working world experience, which we can talk about. But, uh, but that gave me a certain discipline for things, especially when I knew I had the potential to be just exceptional at something like I don't dabble in things. I have sort of an obsessive focus when I want something. It's just like, all right, I'm going to do everything I can. I don't care what it takes to do this. So that year I ended up missing all state band by one chair. You can actually go see the concerto. So I got to play a concerto with the band, even though I missed all state band by one chair. Cause apparently as a freshman, that was a big deal. That was one of the more devastating failures of my life. Like looking back, it was like, you know, that, that also was one of those moments where it's like, I, I remember thinking like, if I, get if i if i lose by a lot great i'm cool with that but if i miss it by one share that's the worst possible outcome and that's exactly what happened they took 3 and i was number 4 um and i even remember the name of the kid who was number 3 his name was scott jackson and uh you know i don't even know why i remember the name and i remember the day to this day it was january 13 1993 it was a rainy fucking cold day in austin texas and uh we were at the ut austin music building but that discipline i think never really left my life um I, I learned that, you know, and it came back when it came time to be a writer. So fast forward, you know, 20 plus years later, um, after getting fired from every job I've been at, and I, I realize I'm facing this unusual situation in which I'm 30 years old. Um, I've had nowhere near a career success. Like my career has been nothing but one debacle after another. And, uh, you know, I, I was the social media intern at Intuit between the first and second year of business school. But when I got out, you know, I, I didn't have a job anywhere. And so that's when I started tinkering around with all this online stuff. And, you know, uh, to make a long story short, and we can get into to more of the details in the weeds. But I started just, you know, writing and the discipline that I carried from band, um, you know, especially when I started writing a thousand words a day, that has, you know, continued ongoing, like it's, it's something that's still part of my life to this day. Um, and you know, I, it impacts every single thing I do. You know, I, I think where it started to become apparent was when I started really writing prolifically. Um, and it went from, you know, blog posts to a thousand words a day religiously. 
and eventually that led to you know um, the formation of Unmistakable Creative, which really started out not, as nothing more than a side project uh, called you know Blogcast FM, the podcast for bloggers. And bit by bit, you know, we went through thousands of iterations of of my work, and you know, I mean, I think I'm in a perpetual state of experimentation. Like to me, I'm never. And then I think the other other thing is I'm never satisfied with you know what we're doing. I'm kind of like, okay, how do we push the envelope beyond you know what people think is possible? So, um, you know, like w- when we looked at a podcast, I was like, what else could this be? Like I could, I, I think for me, I always saw something far bigger than just being a podcast, which leads to you know events and shorts, books. So, you know, we've, I think the thing that's been interesting is at the, the core of it, like I said, we've basically told our stories using every form of media imaginable. Um, and, you know, finding out sort of what that thread is and unmistakable basically was the core idea that emerged from it. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, you know, I think that there's a lot of people out there that have either played a sport early on in life or, you know, were a musician or, or a dancer or something like that in early, on, early, early on in life. And that has really helped them understand the, like the value of a good work ethic, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, I actually didn't start singing music until I was about 18. And it was because my dad was like, Oh, you should go have a singing lesson. And I'd, I'd always love singing. And then all of a sudden I started singing opera, which is a very challenging, very intense, uh, sort of art form. And the people that I was going up against had been singing since they were like five, you know, yeah. like they came out, they started walking, they started talking, and then they started singing classical music. And I think it gives you a, a different sense of what it takes to really die, like turn the dial up to max capacity on really mastering a a very like specific craft, right? Because otherwise people yeah. just, they, they'll try and do like a hundred different things at once. Whereas if you do one instrument, you play that one instrument and you try and get so good at it. And, and, or if you're singing, you, you're like, you're really honing in on that craft to just yeah. feel so like perfect. So, I mean, I think, you know, I, I interviewed this guy recently who's a, a venture capitalist who teaches uh, people in court incarcerated how to code. Um, he's starting a tech incubator in San Quentin. And uh, one of the things we talked about was this idea of immersive experiences, right? Like he had spent a, a, a good amount of time skiing when he was in his 20s, like a year just, you know, being a total ski bum. I mean, I've gotten to be a surf bum for, for you know, longer than probably my parents are thrilled with. But um, it, but the thing is that that, you know, also is another place that I got this same discipline in that I I think that until you've understood or experienced what true immersion feels like, it's really hard to translate that into something else. And and true immersion, I mean, if you look at any of the people that we've talked about, like the Seth Godins, like the Gary Vaynerchuks, um, I think that, that that is one sort of core theme that you will come across in their work is that they're completely immersed in what they're doing um, to the point where they lose themselves in their work. And, and it's just like, I don't think Gary wakes up and, and, you know, and thinks, okay, yeah, I'm hustling and this is hell. He's probably having the time of his life. You know, to him, that's just like he probably, you know, gets off on working from six to 11. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And, and he does. He, he talks about that. He talks about how much he loves it. Um, you know, one of the other questions that that I have for you is you know, this idea of creativity. Is it something that that we're all innately born with or is it something that that is sort of curated through the environments that we're brought up in or the, the circumstances or situations? Like how do you think curiosity or uh, creativity is actually cultivated? 
Yeah. Well, you mentioned curiosity and that slip, but that's a big part of it. So um, th- there are a lot of things that uh, are, are worth noting here. So I think we're all born creative. I think that, um, you know, Chase Jarvis and I had a really interesting conversation about this. I think it's, it's, it's kind of, you know, washed out of us as we get older, right? Because what do we do? Like, as you get older, um, more and more, you go from sort of this you know, playing like a, you know, like a child with reckless abandon and optimism and, and curiosity and, and whatever strikes your fancy to conformity, like, and, you know, conform, you go from one extreme to the other. And so, you know, what do you do? You constantly choose from the options that are foot, put in front of you. Um, so you, you go to school and they say, these are the subjects you can study. You, you're in high school and like, these are the colleges that you should apply to. You go to college, like these are the majors that you can choose from, by the way, these are, and, and what what's happening, I think is that, as you get older, the options that are put in front of you become start becoming narrower and narrower, right? Like you go from 100 majors and 100 majors equals only four career paths. Are you going to be a doctor, lawyer, an engineer? Or are you going to be pre-business and go work at a company and get an MBA? And if not, what the hell are you going to do? Which is really interesting because, you know, we're now moving to this, in, this era where like the options in front of you are so diverse, but you have to create those options, right? And not only that, choosing solely from the options put in front of you is a really limited perspective on what's possible with your life and your work. Um, you know, if I had chosen, you know, when I look, I'll, I'll kind of walk you through getting out of business school because I think that's a perfect example. So I got out of business school and most people, what they saw was, okay, I have to get a job that allows me to pay my debts and it has to be a job that, you know, has an MBA as the qualification requirement. And there were no jobs at the time when I got out of business school. It was April 2009. So when you're, if you, if all you were doing was looking at the options that were put in front of you, you wouldn't see any opportunity. You wouldn't see that, okay, maybe this is a chance to really make a drastic change that could fundamentally alter the course of your life. Like the option to become a published author was not something that was put in front of me. It was an option that I decided to pursue not knowing that it would work out necessarily. So, so yeah, do I think everybody has it? Yes. I, I think the, the challenge is that they need to be put, you know, you mentioned environments. We need to be put in situations and environments that cultivate it, that bring it out in us. And often we're not. You know, like you put somebody like me in a situation where all I do is sit at a phone, you know, at a desk all day, you know, making cold calls. Well, that's the worst thing you could do to a person like me because that completely mismatches what I'm really skilled at and, you know, the environment that I'm put in. And as a result, I get written off as unmotivated, not interested in controlling my destiny, not, you know, somebody who, and you, you've seen my work ethic. I'm not on unmotivated as probably the, last thing anybody who knows me online would describe me as, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm lazy, uh, at moments, but I'm efficient as hell. Like, you know, I, like I pack in, you know, for me, it's like, you give me three hours to work. I will do probably as much in those three hours as a lot of people in a typical setting would do in a week. I would do in, forget, forget comparing me to other people. Cause that's obnoxious. But, um, what I would say is this, Compared to the old version of myself sitting in a cubicle, I do more in three hours than I did as that person in one week. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's when we find those those things that are really like letting us up or leveraging our strengths, right? Like you, you talked about curating this, this idea of curiosity and being able to put yourself in these environments. You know, for the people that are listening out there who, and I, this is the thing that, that like drives me crazy is when people say, oh, I don't have a creative bone in my body. 
And I'm like, oh, that's such bullshit. Like, it's, it's just such true. crap, you yeah. know? And then, so I always start asking questions like, well, what do you do for work? What do you do in your spare time? And inevitably they're doing something creative that they just haven't put a label on of creative. Yeah. So how do you think that people who are out there listening, who might be thinking, I want to feel more creative. I want to be more in tune with that. I want to have more creative time during the week. What, what are some actionable steps that they can take in order to sure. really feel like they're being more creative on a weekly basis? So I think the the big one is this very simple, but maybe, you know, uh, simple to, to understand, difficult to execute instruction, which is to make something every day. Um, and by make something, I don't mean, you know, write a Facebook status update. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's be very clear on what make something is, you know, because people are creative. Like, think about it. Think about all the funny things that people write on their Facebook status updates on a daily basis. Some of them are ridiculous. Like, you know, the question of the hot dog buns. Which <laughs> we have, you know, like that's hilarious to me, you know, especially as somebody who had seen that movie. I'm I'm like, I have an answer to this question. Uh, so the, the thing is that like what's interesting is if you look at, you know, something as simple as this, right? Your phone. This is the ultimate creation tool. Like you can make so many things with this. You can make videos. You can make pictures. I mean, you know, my friend Matt Monroe says if you want to be a photographer, take a picture every day. Just walk around your city and photograph something that captures your interest. And eventually you'll start to see things that you can't see. Because, you know, if you, like, you think about it, why is Seth such an amazing writer? After 6,000 blog posts, you know, he says, you know, at a certain point, if you keep writing every day, eventually you'll you know, we realize you might as well write good writing. Not only that, you can't help but start to pay attention to things and notice things because you know that, guess what, tomorrow I have to write about something. So you notice the, the, the interaction that you have with your barista at your coffee shop turns into a blog post all of a sudden. And that turns into a whole bunch of other things, you know, like, um, you know, I, I'll tell you, even though the core idea of unmistakable came from a conversation I had with Mars Dorian, because he said, Trini, he said, my goal was to create things that are so unusual and distinctive that you can take one look at it and say, that's a Mars Dorian. And I was like, you know, who would have guessed that one sentence would have led to everything that I've ended up doing? One sentence, you know. So is that is that sort of like the core of of the idea that um, only is better than best? Yeah. So here's here's the really core idea behind this. And this is something I think is really, really powerful because it effectively makes the entire concept of competition irrelevant. Right. So if you do something that is so distinctive something that nobody else could do but you, then what happens is that your customers don't shop around, they don't price shop, they don't compare. Because if you're the only option for what you do, then there is no competition. So Mars is a great example of that. So when we need provocative pieces of art you know, commissioned for our brand, you've seen our brand, his, his work is all over it. There's really nobody else who can do that. Like there's, I mean, we could find an artist who could attempt to mimic it, but they would probably fail. Like you can take one look at something that Mars does and you're like, yeah, Mars did that. And for some reason, when it comes to us, I don't know how he's done it and I'm forever grateful. He's figured out how to take our work and make what we do so distinctive that, I mean, when you see anything we've done roll through your Facebook newsfeed, it doesn't matter. You're like, that's only, there's only one crew who could have put that together. It was the unmistakable guys. And that's that's sort of the core thesis. And you know, when I looked at it, you know, across seven hundred interviews, and, and looked at it through the lens of business, through every, every sort of multiple art forms, it's like, wow, there are certain people who actually do, you know, embody this in their work. And because of that, they don't have competition. Like they're able to stand out in a sea of noise. And you know, the thing is that 
for so long, what do we do? You know, like you you gave the example of of Lewis House saying, you know, hey, man, you got to be on Snapchat, right? So what do we do? We read business books, we read case studies, and we say, okay, well, this, you know, famous person has their website look like this, this and this. So you know what, I'm going to take the design and the branding, I'm going to change the name, and I'm going to, you know, create the same thing. Yeah. Um, And you know, or I'm, I'm going to say it's, I'm not going to say it's the same thing, but that's effectively what you're doing. Yeah, replication. Yeah. And so then you complain that nobody pays attention to what you do because you're like, eh, even though what you're doing is just pretty much mimicking and parroting everything that's out there and replicating. So, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain people who have really distinct voices. And, you know, Ashley Inbridge, who runs a blog called The Middle Finger Project, is one of those people. Like, she's one of those people. You read anything she writes and it's like, holy shit. Like, how do you? <laughs> she can take the most mundane subject and make it fascinating and all through just her use of language. And so, you see this and, and you, you know, you don't just see this, um, you know, in, in our sort of, you know, entrepreneurial online internet business world where people are like, oh, you know, like a lot of people try to be Tim Ferriss. It's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do all these things that Tim does. And it's like, why? Yeah. Like, he's, you're not, he's so, Tim. You're not, you're never going to be Tim Ferriss. <laughs> and you're not supposed to be. Right? Yeah. You know, and so, or, you know, I'll give you an example from my own life. So, you know, I remember the first time I saw Gary Vaynerchuk get on stage and, you know, he's like super charismatic and drops a hundred F bombs in a talk. So I went to Pepperdine and dropped like 40 F bombs in a talk. The talk was terrible. Like, it was not eloquent at all. And I was like, okay, well, clearly I shouldn't be doing that. And th- that's an example of exactly what I'm talking about. You know, you look at, or, or another example that I talk about in the book, um, and one of my personal favorites is, is humans of New York, right? Amazing photography project. But the thing is that if you do a search for humans of on Facebook, you'll find a humans of project for damn near every other city in the world. And it's kind of like, really? Like, and, and then you wonder, you know, why is it that these people aren't getting the same attention that Brandon has gotten? It's like, well, he created something completely original. And so, you know, there's, in my mind, um, don't get me wrong. Like, I, I think it's worthwhile to look at what other people have done and learn from it. Um, the problem is when our learning translates into mimicry, which it, which it often does. And so, you know, I think, uh, Chase and I, Chase Jarvis and I were having a conversation. And he mentioned Austin Cleon, who says, steal like an artist. He said, you know, when you steal from one person, that's plagiarism. When you steal from a bunch of people, that's research. Um, so, I mean, and that's, that's really, I think, another one of the big sort of tactical ideas. So let, let's get back to, you know, the, the practical concept of making something every day, right? Go and shoot a small mini documentary with your phone about your city every day. Like just, you know, after 30 days, you'll have like a 20 minute film of a bunch of weird shit. Throw it in iMovie and put it up and see what happens. That's one idea. Um, write something every day. That's mine. Like that's the thing that I do is, is, you know, I write every single day without fail. Um, hell, you know, paint something every single day. Like, you know, go to your local art store, get some watercolors and act like a five year old again. Yeah. Yeah, or like go go out and go out and take photos every single day on your on your iPhone or your Samsung or you know it, on your SLR and then yeah, yeah exactly and then put them up. I think that that's the thing is that getting getting that getting that content out there is equally as important as as taking it because there was there was a time in in my life where I did that where I was like every single day you know I was going out and I was taking photos but it was kind of like this hidden thing and it wasn't until I started putting it out in the world that that it actually landed to me that I was doing something really creative. Well, and that's, that's the, you know, that's the other thing is you can't do this in a vacuum, right? So, um, you know, Austin Kleon wrote a book called show your work, which is all about this process. Like how do you put your work out into the world and, and why more importantly, like, you know, you can't, 
expect you know major career sort of defining things to happen if you don't put your work out there. And the other thing is, I think you have to be willing to be bad at it. Like that's another thing most people are not willing to do. And it's like, like if you went back and looked at a lot of the early stuff I've done, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's a really good point because you know when you start riding a bike for the very first time, you fall off, you scrape your knees, you scrape your hands. Like it's just shit. Like you're just garbage to begin with, <laughs> but then you learn how to do it. And then all of a sudden you're ripping down hills and mountains and, you know, chasing your friends and it's a fantastic time. So, all right, cool. So, so tell us a little bit more about the book. Why, like, why did this come into existence and, and you know, why, what do you think is great about it? What do you love about it? Yeah, so this came into existence uh, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, as I told you, there's a story of, of you know, um, an editor at Penguin Portfolio found a piece that I'd wrote, wrote on Medium and contacted me and said, "Hey, you know, would you be interested in writing a book?" And I, I kind of thought, you know, the the goal, the the dream of a book deal was kind of an afterthought. Of, you know, by I think it was year five, I was like, if it hasn't happened by now, it's not going to happen for me. Um, and I gave up. I, I think around year th- 2013, which is why I self published one book. Um, and so, you know, she came to me and, and, you know, we tossed around a, a bunch of different ideas. She said, I think there's a lot more to be explored in this idea of unmistakable. She said, you realize you wrote a book called The Art of Being Unmistakable and never once defined what it means to be unmistakable. Like, <laughs> that's a good point. So, <laughs> Called um, out. <laughs> And I was like, okay, well, that's, that's fair. So, uh, it, you know, we also decided to organize it this time in uh, surf metaphors. So like the opening chapter is called the paddle out. The second chapter is called the lineup. So uh, basically using surfing as this parallel for business, uh, as this metaphor for business and uh, life and creativity. And so, you know, the core thesis is, is, you know, what we talked about earlier, which is this idea that Mars Dorian really kind of planted in my head of, of you know, how, being the only option is better than being the best option. Because if you are the only option, there is no competition. So why why this book and what motivated me and, and what really was the driver behind this? So I think it goes back to something we were talking about earlier. Um, one of the things that I think started to drive me a little crazy uh, when I look at the online world, like I jokingly tell Brian, you know, I said the other title for this book could be, I think everybody's full of it sometimes. <laughs> like, um, you know, all joking aside, I, I kind of, you know, what really was the, the major driver behind this is I was very frustrated by seeing two things. Um, one was this drastic gap in performance and results that I would see from, from people like, you know, it's like, wait a minute, why is it for every one person that seems to thrive, you've got a hundred who are flailing and not able to, to do this. What's the, what's the code here? Like, is there, is there a way to unlock it? And knowing me wrong, there's, there's certain factors involved that are luck, right? Like us being a popular podcast, timing had a hell of a lot to do with that. Um, like if we had started now, we would not be what we are. You know, I mean, we, we had a seven year head start on a trend. We were way ahead of our time. Um, but looking at, sort of, you know, this, what I call mimicry epidemic was really starting to drive me nuts. I'm like, why is it that, you know, somebody goes to a life coach and they discover that their calling in life is to become a life coach. That's just ridiculous. You know, there's a, there's an actual sketch on a, a Dimitri Martin sketch that John Stewart did with him about this. Um, but that, that's just one example, right? You know, you look at even the podcasting world right now, like podcasting is all the rage and somebody writes, you know, an article on how to start a popular podcast. So of course, and somebody goes and copies everything that that person does. And it's like, Hey, you know what? I have a daily show. It's like, really? Like that's already been done. You know, like, and like, I have a daily show where I interview entrepreneurs and I interview all the same people that everybody else has interviewed. And it's like, that's 
kind of tough to, to, you know, what are you going to bring to it? It's different. Like I really, here's an interview show. I hope somebody starts because I don't have the talent or skills to do it myself, but I want somebody to start a show where they don't interview the person, but they interview three people that the person knew and tell their story through that lens. I'd like somebody to do that. So anybody listening who has the skills to do that, try it out. Um, that you could do with anybody. You wouldn't need to, you wouldn't even need somebody famous to do that. You could do that with anybody and it would be fascinating. Um, so looking at this idea that, you know, people don't model, but they end up mimicking in an attempt to model. That's really what drove it. And I thought, you know, if people could figure out and learn to truly do what they could do very distinctively, more than, you know, more distinctive than anybody else, I think the world would just be better. The work that people produce would be better. Um, the work would be more creative. We would see more innovation, more insight, you know, more creativity. And I think people would have greater levels of fulfillment and happiness with their work too, because, you know, it's, it's kind of like, Hey, you know, like my interview, Chris Gillibo, he said, you know, people email him and say, Hey, I want to start uh, a, you know, a blog and it's, it'll be about my journey to become, you know, a location independent lifestyle blogger in Thailand. It's like, well, that's not very interesting. You know, that's kind of been done and, and that's really all about you and it's not really of service to other people. So I think that, you know, I'm hoping what people will do is really, you know, start to remove masks and labels and stories and start to really expose us to who they really are. And you know what? Maybe you don't have a big audience for that. And that's, that's, you know, one of the, one of the questions I think that was interesting that came from, you know, your Facebook post was what, um, uh, Steve Lockhart's wife Mia asked, she said, you know, um, do you think you could do like a humans of New York style podcast, like where you could ask the same questions that you do to anybody on the streets? And, you know, the answer to that question, I thought about that, that question and one was the one that struck me out of all of them. So I, I felt like it was worth addressing because I think it, it's, it's a fascinating question, but you know, humans of New York is a short interaction with just a picture. I don't know that it's not that everybody doesn't have a story, but maybe everybody doesn't have a story that's meant to be manifest in this external form that is shared with the world, you know, and, and maybe, maybe they do like what, how that, how that shows up for people is different. And the, like I said, I think the big driver for me is, can we start getting people to not look at what works, but to start trying things that haven't worked and do not, you know, what's been proven to work, but do things that have never been done before. Yeah. I, I like that. And you, you have a line in the book that I think kind of summarizes everything where it says, stop trying to beat everyone else. Yeah. True success is creating work that no one else can replicate. Don't aim to be the best, aim to be the only. And, you know, I, I think that that kind of just summarizes exactly this, this concept. And it, it's easy though. Like it, it's, it's really easy when you're starting out because we often learn by mimicking, right? Like we see yeah. somebody else ride a bicycle. We see somebody else swimming. We see somebody else skiing or surfing is a perfect example. I just went surfing when we launched Man Talks in Los Angeles uh, and I've only been surfing once in Hawaii and it was a shit show. And so, you know, I'm out there with my buddy and we're down in, uh, in Malibu and I can't remember what the name of the beach was, but I'm out there and I'm watching people trying to see how they're standing up, trying to see how they like pop up and, you know, get on the board and everything like that. And so normally we, we learn by this state of mimicking. So do you think that mimicking is part of like the entry process into creativity? And then at some form we have to break through from that and find our own style? Yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely true. You know, like I, I even say this in the book. I said, okay, if you're really struggling, you, you know, consider this idea of you know that Austin Cleon mentions, which is to steal like an artist, right? So the thing is that you know 
we get that idea of steal like an artist. The problem is we only steal from one artist as opposed to hundreds. You know, like what I always jokingly say, I don't really know anything. I'm just the, the you know, combination of hundreds of people's ideas, people who are far smarter and more creative than I am. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it does, you know, and that's the thing, right? Like 700 interviews goes somewhere. Like you know, at that point, it starts to manifest externally in your work. Like I'm a different person now than I was when I started this project. You know, like I have certain things and... I mean, all of that has been the byproduct of things that people have taught me. Like I've learned so much. I mean, from the, there's no question in my mind that it's the people who I've interviewed who've shaped my perspective. I mean, if you think about it, the book is really, you know, a showcase of hundreds of ideas of other people, you know, combined with my insights. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good insight. Yeah. So, I mean, I have a question for you about the art world. Yeah. About the art world and, and just creativity in general. But so what do you think is is one thing that's true about the art world that most people are avoiding or scared of, or scared to admit? Um, I think that one of the things that's been really interesting for me is that we th there's a blend between art and commerce that is very delicate and yet important. Right. I think that you know, there's, we have two extremes, the, the sort of squeeze blood out of the stone and, and, you know, this is a business and I'm in it to make money extreme where, you know, it's not an audience, it's a platform, it's a business, it's just a group of people and a bunch of numbers. And at the end of the day, there's only one number I'm concerned about, which is the number of zeros at the end of my bank balance. And then on the ex other extreme, you have Oh, you know, there's something impure about selling your work and, and you know, being an artist is, is all about sacrifice and, and all that. I think there's a happy medium. Like I, I, I by, by all means, you should get paid for your work, right? Like, you know, I mean, you know, I've spent seven years on this project and yeah, of course I'd like people to buy the book. You know, I, I think of it as, okay, we're putting this book together and, and by buying this book, what you're doing is you're making it possible for us to keep this project going. Right. And I think that we, we have a real problem in that narrative. Like we all have a very challenging money narrative, especially when you're on that other extreme end, you know, because what happens is, oh, this guy's a sleazy online marketer because he makes a hundred grand a year because he sells stuff to his list. And I'm like, well, I mean, isn't that what it was built for? Like, you know, I mean, one of the things Tim Grawl was saying in his, his book marketing course is oh, people get really afraid of sending so many emails when their book comes out. He said, that's what you built the list for. You know, and so, and here's the thing, right? When you lose people or people get pissed off because you're selling something, well, those are people who are never really going to support you anyways, you know? Um, because the reality is that, I mean, it's not like these projects are sustained on life support and like bread and water. They take money to run, you know, like it's, I mean, to do what we do, it costs money every month. Like, you know, like, and, and it costs money and it costs time. So the question, you know, we, I think we have to get to a point where we say, okay, this is something that is worth supporting. Now, that being said is what that does is it raises the bar completely for what is expected in terms of quality. It's like, if there's all this stuff out there for free, what you produce when you're asking somebody to pay you had better be fucking epic. Like that's, that's really all there is to it. So that's, that's, you know, it's. So I think that you have to look at those two extremes and find a balance. But I think neither one of those extremes is a good thing, right? Like you want to be generous, but at the same time, I don't think that you have to be afraid of, of saying, okay, you know what? Like we have ads in the show and I used to get really concerned about ads in the show. And, you know, Brian said, he said, truth be told, he said, ads legitimize the show. You know, he said it doesn't, it doesn't make it seem like it's some garage band fly by night operation. He's like, this is a real business. This is a real company. And you know what? This is part of how we make money. If you don't like the ads, send us a check. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it's, it's a really good point because 
you know, the, the art space has changed drastically over the last hundred years. If you think of a, a hundred years ago, somebody who was singing opera or painting or, you know, was a professional dancer, they would have a patron. They would have somebody that was wealthy enough to pay for them to live, to eat, to practice, to have their lessons, like, you know, for their outfits, like they would, they would pay for everything. And now we, we don't really have that patron system. I mean, there's things like Patreon. I don't know if you've seen that website, which is fantastic. And for the creatives that are out there that, that are looking to have some crowdfunding support, it's a great platform to use. But, you know, you're, you're right. There's, there's just like the system has kind of changed and, and we should get paid. Like you should get paid for, for writing an incredible book about creativity. You absolutely should. So, um, the, you know, it's, it's a great insight. Well, you know, I'll mention one thing about crowdfunding and, and, you know, this is probably more, not my insight as much as it is, uh, Clay Haybear and, uh, Seth Godin, but you know, like people think crowdfunding and I've seen friends who, who don't have any semblance of an audience or a community and they're like, Hey, I'm going to go to Kickstarter and I'm going to raise all this money. I'm like, how from strangers? Like the, <laughs> the, the notion that Kickstarter or Patreon is based on the kindness of strangers is something we have to get past. Like you don't, you can't go and say, okay, you should patronize my work without having earned it from an audience first, you know, like for a good example of this, Michael Ellsberg recently put on Facebook that, you know, he's done two books with a publisher and now he's going to do a, you know, Patreon based book where he's, you know, asking people to, to support via Patreon and, and Kindle and he's going to release them as Kindle singles and, and, you know, a totally different process for writing. But the thing is, Michael has earned that with readers, right? Like he's written two amazing books. And so now he has the right to go to them and say, okay, he's got a, he's got a built in community. He's not banking on the kindness of people who have no idea what his work is about. So that's, that's one caveat I would say with that. Yeah. It was, it's interesting because I, I spoke at a social media conference on the weekend and I was like, I'm not a social media you know, they had all these experts up there and, uh, and I was like the guest speaker, right. That they brought me in to speak, uh, at the very end. And they had asked me to sing at the beginning, like sing a little bit of opera. And so I worked it in about, you know, how, being able to find your unique creative sort of, uh, messaging. But I started off with like, listen, like I don't, I'm not a social media expert. Like I'm, I'm not this person that's built, you know, this, this big online presence, although we, we do have a good online presence, but I said, what we have done really well is built a powerful community and it's an in-person community. And that community is starting to expand internationally. And so I talked about building a community. And so how important do you think it is for creatives to really build a, a community around what they're doing, whether it's online or, or in person to support their, their art or to support their, I mean, creativity can be business as well to support their business. How, how important do you think community is? Uh, community is tremendously important, man. I mean, I, I don't think that the community plays so many different roles in our lives. Like if you think about it, right, if you look at even all the research that has been done, you know, by happiness researchers like Sean Acor and Michelle Gaylon, you know, who is his wife, like one of the things they, they talk about is how, you know, at the core, you know, one of our, our biggest predictors of happiness is social support and relationships, right? So if, if you don't have a community, it's like you become the sort of starving suicidal artist, you know, with, you know, nobody to talk to and you make your art misery. I don't know that that's really a viable thing. So community plays a role, not just in, in terms of helping you get your work out, but I think the bigger role that community plays is in helping you stay motivated to do your work, right? Like, you know, I mean, I remember when I was in a really, really dark period of, of my life, um, when I really was just 
thinking, this is it. I'm done. I'm going to call it quits. The, the only thing that kept me going was every day I would take, you know, um, clips from, you know, Twitter, from Evernote or email or yeah, Twitter or email, things that people had sent to me about the unmistakable creative. And I'd put them in that file and I would read them. And I'm like, okay, you know what? This is making a difference in people's lives and this is a community. And so community plays a big role in that sense. I think that you don't, you know, if you don't think of community as, oh, this is, you know, how I get my work out into the world and how I get as big as possible. But you think of, okay, community is what makes it possible for me to sustain this, to, to keep doing the work. Um, you know, and, and there's also a fine balance. I think that you have to really understand between like who your friends are and who your fans are, but that's a whole other conversation, you know, because I don't think, you know, we, I think what we've gotten into is this idea that, Oh, you know, I have 5,000 friends on Facebook. So I have 5,000 friends, but it's like, how many of those people are you going to call and say, Hey, can I crash on your couch tonight? Or, Hey, I'm feeling like I want to shoot myself. Can you talk? Um, and that group of people I think is very small, at least for me, it is, you know, like there's, and, and I think it's important that you have both like support systems are absolutely critical. Um, yeah. No support systems are huge. And it, I mean, it's interesting. You brought up an interesting point because it's, what was it? The, the number one indicator for depression is the answer to the question. Do you have somebody to call at two o'clock in the morning? And if the answer is no, no, I don't have somebody to call at two o'clock in the morning. It's a, it's a high indicator of social isolation and the fact that you're, you're probably depressed. Yeah, um, yeah. and so it's, I mean, community is a, is a huge piece, huge Without piece. Without a doubt. Yeah. Um, just going back to the book really quickly before we start to wrap up, you know, you talked about reading through the book countless times as you were, as you were, you know, curating it and, and, and writing it. I'm, I'm curious which part of the book or what part of the book really had the most emotional impact for you? Yeah. Um, that's a fair question. I think it, it, the, the, the timing of that question is really kind of serendipitous. Um, cause you know, we just talked about depression. Uh, so I, you know, I wrote a chapter called the impact zone. And so, uh, in surfing, there's a section of the, the wave. And now that, now that you've been in the ocean twice, you might remember this. You'll probably will when I tell it to you. So it's waves come in sets. Like, you know, if you've been in the ocean, you know that if you've never seen it, just watch the water and you'll see that. And what happens when waves come in sets is sometimes you're going to be in the wrong place at the wrong time where you will just be taking wave after wave after wave on the head. And it just seems like it's never going to end and you're never going to get past the white water to get to the place where you can actually paddle out and catch waves. So, so, you know, I wrote a chapter called the impact zone that is all about that. And it was about a period of my life, which very much felt like that, you know, I had a bunch of things go wrong all at once. In fact, I mean, I think you, you had contacted me the very first time, sometime when I was in the midst of that funk, you know, just a lot of things wrong all at once. It was going from an extreme high to an extreme low. Like, you know, I started the year having been on Glenn Beck and, you know, the, you know, sold out this event and, you know, my life was going perfect. And then all of a sudden, a lot of things changed all at once. Like sponsors didn't renew their contracts. People left my life that I thought would be there for longer, you know, and then, you know, and it just got worse and worse and worse. Like I thought, you know, I thought, okay, this is just a bad month. And a bad month turned into a bad two months, which turned into a bad quarter, which turned into the worst year of my life. Like, I wouldn't wish that year up on anybody. It was, you know, I mean, I was literally reading articles about founder depression and suicide on Christmas morning on 2014. And I was just like, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I can't remember a day from God. I mean, every day I was just like in tears because I, I was like, what am I going to do? I'm like, I don't, you know, my work is falling apart. I'm not qualified to work for anybody else. And like, I mean, it's, just, and of course, you know, the problem is with depression is that even if none of those things are true, your perception is so colored by what you're going through. I didn't realize, I thought I was just, okay, you know, like I've gone through some hard things, so I'm kind of down, you know, 
um, I didn't really actually process that it was clinical depression for a while. Like I, I went, you know, I mean, I saw a therapist for six months and, you know, by January it was bad. And then, you know, you know, I, I was like, okay, at least the year is over. Like things will start to turn around. Um, and we've been bad. I mean, we're really like in, I mean, we're talking losing thousands of dollars a month, you know, where we're like literally going through the, you know, Brian, my business partner literally went line by line through every single item on our bank balance. And just like, we need to cancel this, this, this. I mean, it was scary. Cause you're like, wow, are we, are we that, you know, bad of a situation where we like, there are certain things we do that are just part of the brand. And it's like, even to do those things are, are questionable. Um, so you know, I mean, a big part of it was, was that, and then, you know, there's a picture of me and, and Brian on the beach and, you know, we, we just surfed for like four or five hours and it was a really nice day. We're lucky we get, you know, 80 degree days in February here in Southern California. And, uh, you know, we surfed this session and, you know, when I get out of the water normally, like especially three, four hours in the water, it was like wave after wave. I'm like ear to ear smile and, and glowing. And he saw this picture of us on the beach and, and, you know, like I knew something was wrong because usually like you get this incredible rush and high, um, you know, endorphins and all the stuff that normally comes from it. And Brian says, you know, one of the big signs of depression is something that, you know, it brings a tremendous amount of joy to your life no longer does. And I like that. And so, you know, I tried for a long time to avoid even medication because I was so you know, we have such a stigma around that, that we, we don't, you know, especially in our online entrepreneurial world, it's like, oh, you know, you should self-help your way out of depression. It's like, you know what? Fuck you, because you've never dealt with it. Like, I, I honestly, I think it's, I think we have a lot of, um, especially, you know, and, and no discredit to people who are life coaches, but there's a lot of talk about, oh, you know, you should just be a positive thinker and be grateful and all this shit. And it's like, I'm sorry, but until you've dealt with it, I don't think it's fair for you to make that judgment call. Like I have a whole other level of empathy for people who've actually gone through it now. Um, so, you know, so Brian saw this picture of me on the beach and, you know, he sent me a text. He's He's like, I think you're legitimately sick. Like he said, you're emaciated and you're in a wetsuit. Like I was rail thin. I mean, I, I weigh 180 normally. I was at like 165 and I was dropping and I was sleeping about three hours a night, waking up every night with heart palpitations. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, I think we, to bring it full circle and, and to, to really you know, talk about what is the, the value and the lesson here is community, you know, um, uh, community and, and support systems. Like I wouldn't have made it through this without Brian. I mean, I, I can't say enough good things about him. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm forever grateful to have somebody like him in my life because I would not have, you know, been able to turn this thing around without him. And it, so that was, you know, that was the most emotionally charged chapter of the book. It's like, wow, I wrote about feeling suicidal and now the whole world is going to know. Um, <laughs> yeah, know, like, that's, I, that's incredible, man. I mean, it, it takes bravery and it takes courage and, you know, I, I think kudos to kudos to Brian for for being there. And, you know, we, t we talk a lot in man talks about having brotherhood and having brothers that, you know, that, you know, you can call at two o'clock in the morning, you can answer that question yeah. with somebody else on the other end of the line. And, and, you know, it's, it's because of times like these. So it's, it's incredible to hear that from you. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. For sure. Um, well, we're going to, we're going to wrap it up here really quick. I'm going to do rapid fire. Uh, just okay. a couple questions. Are you ready? Cool. Yep. All right. Uh, favorite interview you've ever done? Damn it. I, I hate that question. I know. That's so unfair because I there's know. been so fucking many of them. All I right. know. Um, I'll, I'll give you a few. Uh, believe it or not, they're not famous people. Okay. Uh, they, they very rarely are, are my favorite interviews, like super well-known people. Um, I interviewed a guy who robbed 30 banks in two years, uh, a guy named Joe Loya. Um, that was awesome. Uh, 
people people who've gone to prison have the best stories. Yeah. <laughs> they make for fascinating interviews because how many of us are you know ever going to experience that? Fortunately, never in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think of who else was just riveting. You know, another one of them that was really profound uh, was this guy named Jim Bunch. He talked about the environments that make up our lives and how everything is an environment. That was one that had a profound impact. Like I like the ones that have an impact, especially ones that are unexpected because you've never heard of these people necessarily. And then they show up and they kind of just rock the mic and you're just like, whoa. Um, <laughs> so those are two. And then uh, Tess Vigeland was another one that was really cool. Uh, so there's a lot. That's a really hard question to answer. Our listeners you, are probably sitting here taking notes like, oh my God, I got to go listen oh, to this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If, if your listeners are taking notes, then by all means, Philip McKernan. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We, we had him on the podcast as well. I, he's actually spoken at a couple of our events. Yeah, Philip is is one of those guys. Like, you just hand him a microphone and listen. I know, I know. He's just a he's a life changer. He's a life yeah. changer. Um, the one experience you'd recommend to anyone? Because everybody asks, what's the one book that you'd recommend? What is the one experience that you would recommend? Catch a wave. Catch a wave. Perfect. Uh, most underrated trait for modern day success. Ooh, the ability to unplug. Mm. Nice. I agree. Uh, the one book you take with you if you're stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life. Damn. I would say something like The War of Art, but I don't know that I want to read the same book. It would have to be a really big book. And I'm trying to think of what's a big book that would be entertaining. And I don't know that I have an answer for that question. That's OK. Uh, the one movie you'd take. Oh, Right now, off the top of my head, the movie Blow with Johnny Depp. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. That's just I, I love that movie. I think it's so well done. It's, it's a good movie. I'd probably take Braveheart, but that's just because of my <laughs> Scottish heritage. <laughs> um, ooh, this one's kind of interesting. Who do you think is the most influential creative person of all, of all time? Ooh, boy. Um, you know, I, I would say Walt Disney probably because I think Walt Disney uh, – I, I mid like literally just started this biography about him that was recommended in the Tim Ferriss podcast. But I'm like, all right, this thing showed up and it's like this big. It's like a brick. I'm like, OK, even the Steve Jobs bio is lengthy but you know, not necessarily – because if you think about it, like Disney was before Jobs and all the sort of modern day innovators and a lot of them you know, I think were influenced by him. You know, like I look at, OK, this is a guy whose imagination was just off the charts in terms of what he could see in terms of his potential. And he endured a lot of failure too. That's why I would say, I mean, that's, you know, that's maybe my idea. And as far as my historical knowledge goes, uh, you know, if I had a greater, you know, sort of depth of history to draw from, I might say something different. That's perfect. No, that's, that's good. I think Walt Disney is a, a great answer. Uh, and then last but not least, um, what is the legacy that you want to leave in the world? Um, I really, you know, at, at least for me, um, I want to leave behind a sort of vignette of projects and things that, uh, really, I mean, it's this idea of unmistakable, like there's nobody else who could have done this stuff, but me, um, I don't want, you know, I don't want my legacy to be like, Oh, you know, this guy is like the next Walt Disney or the next Tim Ferriss or the next anybody. And I don't think anybody should be the next anybody, you know? Um, I, that's so, and I, I hope to me, you know, I, not only do I leave that behind, but I inspire it in other people as well. Awesome. That's, that's phenomenal. And, uh, where can people find you? Social media. Uh, unmistakablecreative.com and then, uh, facebook.com slash Srinirao. Those are kind of the two places, but, um, unmistakable creative is usually where I send everybody and you can find everything about us there. Fantastic. And don't forget to go check out the book. Unmistakable, uh, only is better than best. Boom. Uh, so yeah, thanks very much for for being on the podcast. Absolutely phenomenal. 
Um, everybody else, go to mantalks.com for more podcasts, blog posts, and uh, videos from our events, which we're launching. Subscribe on iTunes and never miss an episode. Leave us a rating and uh, you know help to help to hashtag Madden Forward. Gotta love that. Um, and we are coming to cities near you if you are uh, in Miami, if you're in Ottawa, if you're in Calgary, if you're in San Francisco. Um, we are launching the event in cities around North America. So stay tuned for that. Make sure that you sign up because we are coming at you. Uh, thanks very much for listening to the Man, man Talks podcast. Catch us next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring man.